Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous. Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous Film Twitter.com, and this is the Mr. Movies Podcast. Damn, remember when I said there was going to be a huge break from war movies? Uh, it's just, I don't know, they're just always in my mind. The way a man will look at another man. He'll maybe have to hang and shoot stuff, and then the other guy, oh man, he's got a thing he can stab you with. Oh man, there's so much blood. Therapist said that it probably shouldn't bring us up on the podcast anymore, but who is he? He has been through everything, everything I've been through, so they're just going him. Hello, everyone. I finally did it. I watched through the thin red line. And wouldn't you believe it, Terrence Malick and his team made a certified good-ass movie... The Thin Red Line is a war epic, or more like an anti-war epic, by definition, I think, uh, about the supposed real-life story of James Jones's own autobiography. The whole movie is one big siege of the Guadalcanal during World War II uh, to seize a little hill from the Japanese. Sounds easy, right? Like, honestly, if it were me... I would simply just win the war without dying at all. I wouldn't even do it once. Scorsese and Roger Ebert both have this movie ranked as one of the greatest movies of the 1990s, if not the greatest, uh, which I mean, there's like always room for debate, but it's hard to argue against a demand and also the man. Seriously, just like listen to these two talk about how much they love the thin red line. You know, I was thinking that, too, about your top four films, because in your films, characters are very much in the foreground. Your films are about people and about yes. their souls, their yeah. guilt, their anguish. And here, these people are, are at arm's length. I love the film, too, because once again, though, it's kind of like a dream. It's The narrator comes down from above and thinks about this material rather than really being up to his neck in it. Well, it takes you to a place in time. Uh-huh. It takes you to a place. You begin to think about, you know, what are we? as human beings, mm-hmm. what, are they, what are these soldiers doing on this primeval island? Do you think that audiences are open-minded when they see a film that doesn't play just like a standard TV movie? No, I'm worried that they're not at this point. Yeah, That's I'm worried about that, too. I'm very worried. That's why I think Thin Red Line is so important. You could come in the middle of it, you can watch it. It's almost like an endless picture. It has, it has no beginning and no end. Uh, people say, well, sometimes I can't tell whose who's voiceover it is. It doesn't matter. It's everybody's voiceover. This movie is probably the best example of Terrence Malick's approach to cinema, which is making a comprehensive movie that kind of transcends the role of it being a storytelling medium, and instead takes on the role of being like... God, I... Sorry, I'm gonna go uh, very much wish as he went to art school sicko mode. Um, Makes it slightly difficult to access poetry. 
like all of his work since this movie, mainly The Tree of Life, uh, falls into this really difficult to parse storytelling that focuses way less on things like the 15-beat structure of traditional Hollywood, like making sure all of your plot points get hit so your producer doesn't hire a hitman to kill you in front of your family, and instead takes its time to establish itself as a moment in time that you just happen to be in the room for. A lot of his filmmaking feels like this, almost like a family home video, in a way. Like, in terms of the glimpses that we get of our main characters before the certified bad stuff starts to happen. Quick shots of them enjoying life on, like, a remote island, showing kids playing games with the only things they have around them, like stones. You know, just life stuff. So before I go and just wreck my brain talking about a movie that's almost three hours long, I may as well cut to the trailer. Hey, Sam. Can you cut in the trailer for... Wait, before we do the transition, I want to read a fan letter. It's the first one I've ever gotten. Alright, let's just uh, open this bad boy up. Wow. Would you look at that? It's a picture of a guy pointing a gun right at my house. Huh. How do you get my address? Well, let's just put that one in a pile I need to take legal action with and move on to my second ever fan letter. Alright, it uh, looks like it's from a fan from Argentina. <laughs> Viva Argentina! Hey Sam, cut that thematically appropriate music. You, you know the one. Alright, it reads, Hey Mr. Movies, look at you. You were once a guy who did nothing with your life, and now you have a podcast. How fun. That's a huge change, isn't it? Doing nothing with your life, then being proud of a podcast? That's not a pathetic thing to say at all. Anyways, I was wondering, for the Thin Red Line episode, I have a joke I'd really appreciate you to say. Before the trailer cuts in, I think, instead of the Thin Red Line, you should call it the fat white ropes. You know, like the sex thing. People will love that. Keep party rocking. P.S. I know where you live. Did you get my first letter? So, uh, now's as good of a time as any to walk through Terrence Malick's... The, uh... The thick white... Ropes. In this world, a man himself is nothing. And there ain't no world but this one. I've seen another world. Sometimes I think it was just my imagination. If I go first, I'll wait for you there. On the other side of the dark waters. Why should I be afraid to die? I belong to you. The movie opens up doing exactly what I just said earlier. Not, 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 not the ropes part. The, 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 the. These quick, sincere glimpses into a small, coastal village society are just, like, shot beautifully, as you'd expect. All of it looks like B-roll from a stock footage pack called Exuberance 
or like a trailer for the new red camera series. Like, goddamn, you get like fog in the trees. And, you know, it's only $20,000. And it's a good thing, too, because I'm a big, rich film boy who can afford toys that are more expensive than most cars people have. The soundtrack through all of this is almost angelic. It feels like it's straight out of a Christmas mantelpiece that you would wind up and watch a Cradle with Jesus rock into. It's accompanied by this classic overdub narration, slowly pitching a general idea, like uh, peaceful isolation, which gets handed off to our main character, who slowly recollects these past glimpses of his mother who has recently passed away. But this isn't just, like, ham-fisted, like, childish writing. A bad director would do that classic writing style of, you know, like the doctor coming in and going, Sir, I hate to tell you this, but your dead baby has cancer. You know, that misery style of writing that a whole lot of uh, made-for-Amazon and Hulu Hulu shows seem to deploy now. I guess we really are all this miserable in real life. (laughs) Like, real-life problems just don't hit the same anymore. Malik and his crew compose what feels like a soundtrack that just happens to take place during a movie. There's no quick cuts to just, like, a bunch of shit happening and everyone screaming, which is typical with anti-war-style movies, but instead utilizes the, like, the memorable sounds that you would experience in that moment. Like, as he's recollecting his mom, we're accompanied by these two small finches just kind of peeping as they're playing, which shows us his mom reaching out to whom I'm assuming is his sister, who then has his uh, has her ear on his chest, where we hear the bassy thumps of his heartbeat, which is just genuinely good filmmaking. It's great. Like, I, I don't know if any of you have lost someone close in your family, but the things I remember are like little sounds or quick glimpses of moments that have stuck with me. So something like a heartbeat you hear during a hug isn't just overly sentimental screenwriting. It's honest. And you feel uncomfortable watching it because you know you want to feel with them, but you're so irony poisoned from being online that feeling stuff is cringeworthy and you want to avoid that. You baby. You... You little infant. We get barely 10 minutes of this tranquil island life before all this shit gets interrupted. By who? Who do you think would suddenly show up with a war boat on the coast? I'm going to give you 10 seconds to search deep, deep into your heart to just guess. What country do you think would have a big metal war boat that would come by and scare the shit out of islanders? Who would... Yeah, it's the U.S. And more specifically, Sean Penn. And it turns out, our hero is an actual hero, as he joined the military and has spent most of his time being AWOL. Which is objectively the best thing you can do as a troop. Like, if you weren't on board with him as a character yet, you definitely will be now. (laughs) 
Specifically if you aren't, like, fighting Nazis, and instead you're just doing territorial claims in Asia. Sorry, the being AWOL is objectively the moral thing to do. <coughs> he gets courted back in, and is forced to go do war stuff overseas, specifically about a newly occupied area called The Rock, which is now controlled by the Japanese, who have installed an airbase there. And yeah, I said Japanese, and not what they called them, because I'm a woke ally, and I'm doing activism by... Um, I'm trying to find the words for it. Uh, I'm an ally because I didn't say a slur one time on a podcast. Hell yeah. Mr. Movies. Philanthropist. Activist. Podcaster. This scene is really well filmed, uh, mostly because of two things. One, the sound design. Like the intense narration about the ongoing fear of death that lurks any time that you go to battle, specifically overseas, with a plane screaming above head, the gentle lapping of the waves on the ship, accompanied by the music that is just masterfully composed. It's intoxicating, because the, sh the shit's just so good. And two, more importantly, John Travolta mustache. The movie is a massive ensemble cast, which is really great to see, given that it's from 1998, I think. You have familiar faces like Adrian Brody, and Sean Penn, and Jared Leto, Nick Nolte, I, I think George I see, Clooney, I saw John C. Riley, John Cusack, Harrelson, and Buster Scruggs' Murder Man. What, what I love about the scene, deep in the bunkers of the ship, is how honest they are about how terrified all of them are for war. Like that one kid who talked about his stepdad beating the shit out of him and running away from him. Or the others who are trying to remember their loved ones and are coming to terms with the fact that they may never see them again. I forget what philosopher said it, but they said that it's impossible to make a truly anti-war movie. Which, like in the American sense, is almost completely true. But in the global sense, I think it's wholly false. Like, have you seen Come and See? Like, oh yeah, dude. Totally a pro-war movie. Doesn't matter what it was saying. That movie was pro-war. But the thin red line humanizes the soldiers in a way that isn't like a typical fash apologia. The whole, anyone can be a hero, even you, beautiful boy who wants to go kill people overseas, thing. Uh, this movie humanizes them in a way that shows how everyone involved... Uh, because they were drafted, pretty much didn't want to be there unless they were high-ranking. And I mean, like, high-high-ranking folks, who knew they didn't have to see any combat, and even if they lost, would need to be captured alive, or else they'd violate some sort of international law. The, thing, uh, the Thin Red Line also does a stellar job at depicting the size and scope of this war, like an absolutely massive war effort that killed tens of millions of people is actually shown here. And the number of soldiers uh, casted for this initial beach invasion scene makes the scope of war feel so much bigger than most modern war movies I've seen. Like Dunkirk. Dunkirk was a movie that felt like it was almost there. Almost. It was a movie that did the time manipulation stuff that Christopher Nolan is buckwild horny for, but the thing that fell flat to me was two things, really. 
uh, one completely my fault, and the other was completely out of my control. The first being, I watched it on a TV that didn't have a sound bar, so it sounded like shit, but the other was how small the scope of war felt. I mean, this is World War II. World. It's in the name. It's gotta be big, because world, big. So as we get those long, sweeping shots of the beaches in Dunkirk, the soldiers that were casted for the movie, most of them, as they're waiting there, were digitally superimposed. Uh, You know, so they were just kind of like cloning the lines of soldiers. Which made the scope feel not only smaller, but almost phony. Like, the war felt so much more personal. Like, there wasn't this constant shifting perspective like we see in The Thin Red Line. It was almost like that movie 1917, which is about a special boy who was in a special war that was so special because he was in it. Like, war's horrible, and it should be treated that way. So movies that deal with things like personal triumph just feel like pro-war propaganda to me. The Thin Red Line never lets you grow incredibly attached to, like, just one guy. You're forced to empathize with the whole crew, and they're all scared out of their mind facing an enemy that's so much more well-organized than any of them could ever hope to be. We've been slowly coaxed into the idea of the anxiety of war for about half an hour now, but we haven't seen the consequences of it yet. That is, until after the beach invasion scene, we see our first bodies, which are two American soldiers, with both of their legs blown off, covered in their own blood. Like, damn, who, who, knew, who, who, who knew this war shit meant that people we liked and identify would die brutal deaths? We should avoid, we, hey, we should avoid this instead of cel- Hey, hey, we should, we should avoid it instead of cel- celebrating it. The bodies start to pile up. Because war doesn't just kill. No. That'd be too easy. If it just killed, that would probably be better than the alternative, which is people just losing limbs and senses because of bomb raids and then dying very, very slowly and painfully in hospitals back home. We see tons of soldiers, all horrifically maimed, attempting to get help, you know, stitching their blown bodies up. They're the blown up bodies back together? I don't know how to say that. And again, this is war. If you're going to make a war movie, it's your personal responsibility to make it perfectly clear that war does awful shit like this to you. And if you're not doing a war that's grand in scope, like the Thin Red Line, you have to make sure that the injuries match in proportion to the number of soldiers committed to the war. Which sounds bad, doesn't it? Well, war's bad. Have I said that enough? I don't know, enough feeling things. I want to talk about bombs. This is your 
first mistake. Now I'm going to tie you to these railroad tracks. This is serial killer behavior. No, this wasn't my greatest mistake. My greatest mistake was... Out with it. The train is closing fast. Look at me. I'm the train conductor. Hey, uh, aren't you a little bit young to be driving the train? Be quiet. There's no child they belong. My greatest mistake was not subscribing to the Mr. Movies Patreon on Patreon.com. Meow! What is that? Constant project updates, polls for upcoming shows where you can control the episodes, and one new episode a week. Wow! What a deal! That that's good and I'm I should subscribe. Goodbye! You should! Go to patreon.com slash Mr. Movies now to start your subscription today. Where did he go? Did you seriously leave me? There's a train coming, sir! Ah oh, man, the 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 bombs, these re- real bombs, these uh, big bi- big old big old fireballs, uh, a whole whole hill being exploded, smoke. Oh man, smoke smoke in in the air where you that that's that's my air I'm breathing, but not anymore because there's smoke in it. The uh, the war, am I right, boys? We. We, we, we love, we, we, we love war. War, war is so cool. The, the, <laughs> so fucking bad at this. This scene's real cool because I finally feel like I saw myself on film. There's this one guy, after seeing what was probably like $10 million worth of bombs being dropped, shit himself, then asked to go home. And I mean, to see your cinematic representation on the big screen, it's just... It's an honor. It's a... It's a huge honor. This movie plays with your senses so much. In the next scene, the boys are storming up the hill to seize the Japanese stronghold on this one position that leads down to the coast or something like that. And after two guys are sniped, like, with 100% accuracy, no bullets lost, there's this moment of beautiful tranquility and silence. The grass on these hills, are it's like really long, and it flows dramatically in the wind. It's perfectly quiet, and the sun, almost dreamlike sunny, rolling in, um, it looks like it's straight out of a Miyazaki tribute video. This gets immediately cut by the most brutal shelling and bombing of the battalion we were just introduced to. Like up-close-and-personal firebombs, mass death, with almost zero enemy casualties, it seems like. These moments of quiet and beauty had to have happened all the time in World War II, right? Like just marveling at a beautiful French beach before the Nazis invaded seconds later. This movie's constantly toying with your sense of security by juxtaposing these moments with each other just constantly. It's an onslaught. Like no victory comes without a loss, no moment of peace comes without seeing your friend get exploded. Because war 
fucking sucks. One point this movie makes, in a really brutal way, is just how young everyone involved was. They do this literally by showing, like, what looks like 14-year-olds, scared out of their minds by a bombing spree, but also in this brutal scene where a guy is shot in the stomach, and because of the massive amount of pain he feels, reverts back to being a child. Like, crying for his mom, whining, it's... It's really hard to watch. Because this war shit sucks. And if I was in charge, I'd I'd simply make war illegal. See? It's easy. You gotta be quiet, I came to help you, Tom. Fuck you! I'm dying! I'm dying, son! Okay, well goddammit, get on the left, boy! How you gonna get me out of here? I'm gonna take you back! We finally get a breather from the mass death of this battle scene, which goes on for like half an hour straight, by the way, to the mission changing, uh, something about recon, I don't know, I'm not a Call of Duty, but as the men are making their way deeper and deeper into enemy territory, there are these small breather moments that take us back to home. And this is probably a good time to talk about my favorite Malik criticism, which is people saying that they just don't get him, which is fine. Not all art is for everyone, but these moments are deeply humanizing in a way that I haven't seen in a war movie. Like, what's wild about the way that they're structured is how the soldier himself is never the focal point of the fond memory. It's always his partner. You don't really humanize any of the other soldiers in these moments, which is a stark contrast to a movie like, I don't know, like a Saving Private Ryan? where you're forced to empathize with the soldiers and honor their sacrifice or whatever the National Review tells you to do that week, these moments are deeply personal and are either from the soldier's point of view or intentionally excluding them and treating their partner back at home as being the only people innocent in this entire conflict. They're overly romantic glimpses, sure, but they're the only times we see someone as genuinely being viewed as innocent in the weird web of mass death. It's what makes this a great anti-war movie is what I'm getting at. Not wholly anti-war, as there's still that general oeuvre of this is what you're fighting for back at home, which you can draw from any war movie, but my god, dude, what, 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 what do you want from an anti-war movie? Not everything can be come and see. The camera movement in this movie is unreal. This is some of the best camera movement you'll ever see in a movie, period. Like, uh, this is kind of the Malick special, if you can call it that. Terrence Malick, uh, the way that his movies work, I mean, I mean, it's not him, it's his camera crew. But the way that his movies work is you're always this kind of, like, detached energy that's just kind of a passive observer of something horrific that's going on on screen. Like, stylistically, you have two options for how you can do your camera work in a war movie. The first, and the most overdone, is the point of view over the shoulder shot. You know, like being all bouncy, lazily slogging through the grass, like the weight of the war is on their minds. But the second, and the coolest in my opinion, is to be this completely ambiguous, almost surreal movement as you crane in and around the soldiers. You yourself aren't being forced to 
see the world through their eyes, you're ambivalent towards it. Because that's what war movies are. You're completely unaffected by the combat, just like in real life, so nothing really feels like it has consequences while you watch it. When this is the case, there's no real reason for you to ever pretend that you're one of the boys, because there's nothing really being challenged here. Why not cut out the middleman and just stop pretending and be completely detached from the combat overall? Become a big old ball energy like me, floating around and just looking at grenades go boom. Oh, speaking of, we get our first win, I guess you can call it, of the conflict, which is the raid and eventual seizure of the Japanese-controlled bunker at the top of the hill. We don't get long to, uh, celebrate, I guess is the word that you would use, this victory. I guess you could call it that, uh, because the way that the Americans handle this victory is by immediately committing a massive war crime, which is shooting and killing their prisoners of war which is like an innately animalistic thing to do. You know, you hurt my friends, so I hurt you. But that got me thinking, who exactly monitors war crimes like this? If you're the biggest, baddest military in the world, who in their right mind would ever tell you to stop? Like, there's no real punishment for just, like, killing every single person you capture. You can just say that they fought back, right? Like, this is hell. I, 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 I don't I don't know. Ever since I heard that quote I brought up earlier about there being no real anti-war movie, I just can't stop thinking about how off it seems. Like, I get it from the point of view about, like, an anti-war movie that shows a soldier having to see their friends die or whatever, and that's the bad thing about the war movie. Because there's an inherent loss there, which also shows heroism in the process. So, like, in that very particular groove, yes... Yes, that is not an anti-war movie. But this movie, each victory is like being plagued by war crimes, like shooting prisoners and even like shooting the fleeing. I'm sorry, man, this, this feels like an anti-war movie. The savagery of the top brass, the inhumanity of the killing campaigns, the incredibly shallow graves depicting bleeding faces. It all feels like a truly anti-war movie. This movie is stellar in the way that it plays to uh, tropes without being hokey. Uh, the scene after the siege of the bunker, uh, filled with the literal fog of war, which dissipates the second conflict starts, is very haunting, I think. Waves of bodies rushing the American troops, stabbing them with bayonets, just already accepting their deaths. Like, I don't know, what I love about the scene is the song accompanying it. Like, this isn't a scene of triumph, although it is. There isn't some pro-Department of Defense composition and a major key to make you feel like you're on the good guy's side. The whole thing is played completely melancholy. The Americans are absolutely, by definition, dominating here. But it's played as a tragedy. The song wells in this minor key as the Japanese soldiers are piled up and massacred. Villages are set on fire while bunkers are being raided. The whole thing, 
in any other war movie would be seen as like the big comeback. This would be your break into the third act because the best friend of the soldier died or some shit. But here, it's played as a deeply tragic event. Even during this raid, the narrator wonders where this evil comes from, presumably talking about the Japanese initially, uh, but then shifting to a general question about what kind of god would allow for this kind of thing to happen. And folks, that's a, that's a good-ass question. I say, at the risk of being compared to a Reddit atheist. Who's killing us? Robbing us of life and light. Mocking us with the sight of what we might have known. But don't worry, folks. The American soldiers finally got their water. You know, after all this, we did it. The thirsty boys got their sips. You know, maybe this war thing isn't so bad after all. The further along this battle we get, the more we see, like, an empathy develop towards the one general who cares. And I want a general who cares. He'll kiss me and tell me he's I'm like one of his sons. He'll kiss me right on the forehead. The way the scene plays out isn't like, damn, he's the one good soldier. Instead, it shows how military service stamps out any sort of humanity, the higher ranking you become. Like, caring isn't human, it's weakness. And I'm a big American boy. And I'm, and I'm proud to be This movie is so moving in the way that it seamlessly transitions from fond home memories to violent firebombings. I don't know if it was intended to be this, but I'll definitely read it this way. This goes to show kind of why the U.S. is so prone to being pro-military. Like, there's a billion reasons why the U.S. feels predestined to wholeheartedly back the military. Like, it's a country in the death throes of its old identity, madly scrambling for a new nationalist ideology that's even more violent than its past iteration. It's a decolonizing country refusing to give up its wasp roots of predetermined glory for resource seizure. It's a war economy since its inception. But above all, every war happens somewhere else. Somewhere far away. And more importantly, somewhere you don't have to look at. So you get all these wild war stories about your battalion leader being the bravest boy who ever touched a helicopter, but does that affect you? No, of course not. We never had to deal with an aerial bombing run here. We haven't had an actual military assault on the United States mainland since, like, what, the early 1800s? The war is always somewhere else. We never have to witness the horrors of it, so... The fuel to the fire of the support for the system is whatever indoctrination tool you want. Pick, pick, pick whatever you want. It comes in 30 flavors. Do you like video games and camouflage pants? And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free One thing I love about this movie is in the final assault on the Japanese... Humans, or any human involved in this war specifically, just violates whatever beautiful shot of nature is in frame. 
the tranquil breeze and sunny, foggy day glow, are completely ruined by a swarm of people going in, wearing camouflage, and killing whatever they see. Again, I'm not sure what Malik's actual politics are, but he seems to criticize every single component of the war machine, even down to something as simple as, you're destroying something beautiful for no reason at all, aren't you? Which sounds very New Age hippie, but it works for me, so shut up. More war shit happens, who care, but our main boys, and the only cool soldier who went AWOL the whole time, get completely surrounded by the Japanese army, who finally have an upper hand. Their deaths, and really, mass death overall, is juxtaposed with these glimpses of young life, playing in the ocean, which gets juxtaposed again with a shallow grave, draped in a helmet with dog tags. Like, it's funny how in war movies, uh, ones that believe in some sort of general empathy, uh, are only, like, the only ones who didn't deserve to die, die. War sucks. Not, not, Mr. Movies, official, not a fan of war, 2021. Uh, if I, if I see a war, if I see a war in my house, I'm gonna say, take that outside. I don't want that here at all. No war for me, thanks, I'm full. <laughs> This cuts to George Clooney, uh, Sergeant General, Colonel, Brigadier, something, I don't know, ranks aren't real, and the system starts over again. How did that quote go? Uh, the guy who from uh, Starship Troopers, it says, more meat for the grinder. Uh, a, a new leader is slotted in its place, and the machine chugs along. And everyone who just saw their friends die, every life they took, weighs on them, while a new leader fresh-faced, takes their place, and encourages more death to happen. And I'm proud to, and I'm proud to be here with Devin And that's a thin red line. Did you know this war shit sucks? Damn. It's, it's just, I, the, this movie actually got me thinking, like, all these soldiers in this movie were drafted, right? Imagine trying to institute a draft today. Like, I just kind of imagine everybody being on TikTok, um, burning their draft cards to that one song that goes, Oh no, oh no, oh no, no, no. You couldn't get me to serve in any fucking war. And I think that that goes for a lot of people in this generation. Because I'm, I'm just about aged out of the draft. I am 28 years old, I think this is the last year I could ever be drafted, but... I don't know. War toys are all fancy now. You can just kind of play video games and bomb people from the sky and face no repercussions yourself while you further destabilize an area that already was unstable. But in the end, what can I do? I'm a podcaster. The greatest hero of them all. I want to thank you guys for listening to the Mr. Movies podcast about the Thin Red Line. A movie that was on the Patreon poll that I just decided, like, all right, this one isn't going to win, but I really finally want to watch this movie, so I just decided to do it for the show. Um, yeah, I just, I just, I don't know what's coming up. I'm probably going to do another one from the list, but I know for, for a fact on the Patreon, everyone voted for the four-hour-long Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> Thanks, guys. A four-hour movie. Didn't know you could do that, but here, here, here we are. 
Oh fuck, that's a war movie, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> uh. See you next week, everyone. <laughs>